Hey there, this is a preview of one of our overtime episodes. We've been doing this series on uh, exposing the repressive state apparatus for what it is, which is basically a giant arm of the U.S. hegemony. And we got this little clip for you here. If you want the full episode, go ahead and go to www.patreon.com slash workstoppage and become a patron for $5. If you can't afford that, go ahead and hop in the Discord and we and hit one of us up. We'd be happy to let you have access to this. I also want to let you know ahead of time, this particular, even in the preview, but also the full episode, is pretty heavily about the uh, drug industry and how you know the cia has basically done a lot for it and also there is mentions of suicide so i just want to get out ahead of that one and i hope you all enjoy this preview and hopefully you become patrons and get the full thing but uh let's uh let's go yeah and so we actually have a clip here from uh, somebody who used to work on basically this money laundering, explaining how it worked and how the Contras were able to wash this money and use it to then fund their war against the Sandinistas. Uh, you've also been a supporter of the Contras, is that accurate? Yes, sir. Um, are you aware of whether or not narcotics proceeds at some time may or may not have supported Contra efforts? Yes, sir. Narcotics proceeds were used to shore up the uh, Contra effort. Did you personally play a role in some of the transfer of that money? Yes, I did. In 1984, when Congress cut off Contra funding, the White House turned to other sources for support. According to documents, Ramon Milian Rodriguez had been laundering foreign payments for the CIA up through 1982 at the same time as he was laundering cash for the cocaine cartel. He says the CIA turned to him again. To have people like me in place that can be used is marvelous for them. The agency, and quite rightly so, has things that they have to do which they can't never admit to an oversight committee. Right? And the only way they can fund these things is through drug money or through illicit money that they can get their hands on in some way. Was any of the money traceable to drugs or to drug-related transactions? The money that we, uh, you're talking about the money that we provided? That's right. No, sir. And why was that? Because we're experts at what we do. And so, like you can see, like this is very, this is something that there was no, this is not going on under the CIA's nose. They, they knew exactly what was going on, and it was the perfect way. It was the simplest and most logical way for them to continue a revenue stream to combat what they saw as, you know, a, a, a vital threat to American security, which is an incredibly poor country in Nicaragua that's been devastated by decades of U.S. neocolonial and then, like, direct warfare, trying to have a socialist government and... At one point, the Contra drug smuggling ring was selling $3 million in crack a day just in Los Angeles. Wow. So, like, this is not a small-scale operation. This is not, like, the Contra operation introduced. They, they added 10 or 
to the already existing U.S. drug market. They did not, you know, control it entirely, but they were the driving force behind it becoming as big and as, and as problematic as it was. And, and you were talking about, like, what would happen, you know, if this stuff got revealed. Mm-hmm. And so there were a few stories, like this, this documentary that we've been including clips from came out in the late 80s. Um, and there were stories released in major papers to almost no fanfare whatsoever throughout the late eighties and early nineties. And people were in the major papers brushed it off as, ah, no, this is just, this is all a coincidence. There's no involvement of the United States in this. This is just happening on the periphery. Anybody linking this to the CIA is crazy. Yeah. The Washington post ran an expose about the CIA smuggling drugs on page 10, but what was on page one bat boy, they finally found him. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. And so, what really broke this story and what really brought it into the the mainstream public consciousness was a series of investigative articles put out by reporter Gary Webb for the San Jose Mercury News, where he published this big expose on the whole program with a vast series of documents and interviews. He had his case bulletproof that the CIA knew about this and they enabled it and they were happy for it to be functioning in order to keep funding the Contras. And it was actually, it was also one of the first big, like, today we might call it like Web 2.0, even though I guess it was really Web 1.0. Right. Um, but it was like a big, a whole special website set up for this series. It was called Dark Alliance, Exp- like that would include like, you know, pictures and I think maybe even some interviews alongside the actual, you know, text reporting. And so that made the story accessible to a lot of people. He was talking about getting like a million hits a day mm-hmm. on, on the, the, the website. for. Well, it. and this is the early internet too. So it's like, right. If you have good content and you throw a couple of geo city style, rotating flaming yeah. skulls up there, people will read what you have to say. Yeah. And so they put these stories out in the nine in, in 1996. And so like the, just to, as an aside, like this is all like Gary Webb was the, the voice that we included as a clip at the beginning. He's, he's explaining like his, his, his involvement in this story. And after the launch of this, this major expose with tons of supporting documentation, the press had to change its tactics. They couldn't just do the ignore it and it'll go away strategy, which they were largely doing before. And they shifted into a full court attack on, on Gary Webb's credibility and anybody who listened to him. And so we have a clip here uh, from Gary Webb, basically explaining the press reaction and the links between so many of the national security reporters at these major papers and the CIA. The government reaction was no reaction. And this, I I believe, was a a very careful strategy because nobody was going to believe the government if they came out and said, we didn't do it. Um, The proof was fairly overwhelming since we had all these government documents showing that that it had happened. So what happened was they let the so-called liberal press speak for them. And they had the national security reporters at the Washington Post, who coincidentally used to work for the CIA, uh, write stories saying it doesn't mean anything. And so writers for the Washington Post were particularly aggressive in trying to discredit Webb and to try and claim the story was nonsense. And they and also several other major papers attributed the stories of CIA involvement in the crack epidemic to, quote, black paranoia basically blaming the entire black community for being 
paranoid about being persecuted by the United States government. Jesus Christ. And, and like this isn't like it, ancient history either. This is no. like what 40 years ago. Uh this is barely 25 years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And this is this is this same line was pushed by basically every major paper, but the Washington Post was the most aggressive, but the line that this was like you know, just this is just paranoid black people who are claiming they're being persecuted. Like that was one of the major lines, especially when we saw things like I think it was Representative Maxine Waters. I apologize if that's I, I didn't write. I should have written, written it down. But like there, that's the other thing that's interesting. There are like, you know, members of Congress who were members of Congress then who were looking into this, who are still there today and like who were ridiculed for this and 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 called you know crazy conspiracy theorists and paranoiacs despite the fact that again webb had meticulously documented these connections between this this drug traffic and the cia and webb ended up facing so much backlash from the cia controlled press that he would eventually get forced out of the mercury news and a few years later, like after the Mercury News published an incredibly cowardly retraction, despite the fact that, again, nothing that in his reporting had been proven to be incorrect, uh, Webb was essentially blacklisted from the entire like journalism industry in the United States. His reputation was completely destroyed and he ended up killing himself. Um, and like his, his, he was essentially like murdered at a, an arm's length like by the cia mm -hmm. like yeah. not like and and i've read stuff and i i, I at, at one point had and laid some potential credence to the idea that he was actually directly killed by the cia but then i i had read some more stuff about talking with like his uh like people who were close to him that talked about like how incredibly depressed he was in the time frame up to it and that like they they believe that he did actually like do this because of just you know how his life had basically been completely destroyed in an attempt to suppress this story and at the very least muddy the waters enough that most people would say, well, I, I read about this, but I don't know what to believe. All these are, all these places say it's crazy. So I don't know. And yeah, I, I, I think that one of the, one of the things that I, I is really understandable about that situation is being someone who I feel I feel a little forced out of my uh like business for for di totally different reasons but the the amount of depression that comes from like putting so much work into something and then being forcefully removed from it uh is is incredibly like just devastating and and to have something that is that popular and that important and that clearly laid out to just be absolutely like defeated by the united states government uh i can see that being being just one of the most devastating things in someone's life and i and i it's a it's horrible it's absolutely well, it, it's, it's awful it, it's especially hard to swallow having grown up in this country and constantly hearing about how we don't have state controlled media and we have the right. freest press in the world. And it's like, yeah, until you start meticulously compiling evidence that like the CIA smuggled drugs, for instance, and then all of a sudden you're not even allowed to like work at your chosen right. profession anymore. Yeah, that's which is the thing. journalism, like, which I I don't mean to, I don't, I don't want to be I want to point out that it is journalism, the thing that is that is this is that is that was his job. His job mm -hmm. was to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and 
And that's the thing is you'll, we'll hear someone, Oh, the U S doesn't have censorship of the media. I'm like, well, not in the way you think of censorship, but in a lot of ways it has a much harsher regime mm-hmm. of censorship than most of what people refer to as, you know, just state controlled media. Like, I, I mean, when you get somebody who is for telling the truth and trying to let people know about a story that is directly affecting millions of lives in this country and continue and, to much after. Yeah. And has his entire life destroyed is completely blacklisted from the only industry that he'd really worked in. And to the point where it completely destroyed his life. Like, I don't know. That sounds like some pretty tough censorship to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, like this whole series of covert wars and the CIA's involvement in them, you know, as I've been mentioning, contributed to various surges in the drug supply in the United States. And and as we mentioned before with that quote from Nixon advisor, that provided pretext for the U.S. to justify massively expanding police power within the U.S. and to unleash basically, you know, what's called a war on drugs, but was really a war on the black community and the working class communities in the United States. And, and that's why I think it's better to understand the war on drugs as a counterinsurgency program as then it is to think of it as an actual attempt to stop the flow of drugs into the U S because it's not really what it ever was. Like it, it was, it was aimed entirely at destroying the movements that had been built up in the sixties. Cause people will talk about, oh, well, you know, we had the black Panthers, we had, you know, the, the Brown berets, we had all of these revolutionary movements in the late sixties. There was all this, you know, upheaval. What happened? Well, this is a big part of it. Like it wasn't just that, you know, there were splits between the different groups, which did happen for sure. A lot of times engendered by COINTELPRO. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not just because there were changes in the, uh, you know, international situation and as well as the economic situation within the U S those all contributed, but there was a direct repressive campaign carried out against these organizations. And the war on drugs was a huge part of it. And it's arguably, I would say the most successful part of it because it's still going on today. It's, it's still used as a pretext to give blank checks to the police to expand police powers all over the place. And we've only seen in very recently in the last few years, some minor attempts to chip away at that around the edges that have been relatively unsuccessful overall. Mm -hmm. And it also, I would draw another parallel though, to something that's been going on like right now uh, between the way that we now, after the massive uprising uh, in 2020, Uh, against racism where suddenly, you know, after that happens, after you have a real strong working class push for change, we start getting all these stories in the U S media about mass shoplifting, about these organized gangs of crime going through the roof. And it's because of the defund the police movement, despite the fact that not a single police force in this country has been defunded. Yeah, I mean, there was like a little bit of talk about lowering the budget of the Portland police, right? And then they never actually, like, they kind of did it, and then it never really happened. And then it was used as such, like, a, a political bludgeon that now their budget is, like higher than ever. And most in most places there wasn't even like a real push towards defunding anything. It no. was just like you made the Democrats kneel in kente cloths and <laughs> yeah. somehow that encouraged looting. So now right. we have to fund the police even more. 
Right. And, and, and which is, again, like I, I think these are very important parallels of the ways that the ideological state apparatus works hand in hand with the repressive mm-hmm. state apparatus to respond when there are moments of, of, of rebellion or revolutionary upsurge to work in tandem to try and crush those movements and, and create, you know, a, a strong backlash amongst the more rea- and, and to stir up reaction. And one of the things that I found interesting in reading about this was that a lot of the legal tools that have been used by the U S government, by agencies like the DEA, the FBI, the various, you know, law enforcement agencies here to expand this counterinsurgency campaign, this domestic war on the U S people are revisions of the RICO act, which were, you know, originally set up to go after the mafia and also sort of unions. Um, and that those expansions were passed largely with the direct like assistance, support and backing of then Senator Joseph Robinette Biden. So you're telling me that two episodes in a row, we've gone over the history of the repressive state apparatus and our president, Joseph Robinette Biden, (laughs) has come up both times to at least two of the three in the episodes uh, with a direct connection to the programs that are like the exacerbation of that repressive state apparatus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you mean, think Nancy Pelosi's the greatest stock trader of all time. Wait till you find out who the biggest drug dealer in the world is. It's Joseph <laughs> Robinette McCarthy at Biden. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, cause that's the thing. It's like you get the idea out thrown out there that like the democratic party is like the mild version of the capitalist <laughs> parties, but it's like, yeah, sure. The the Republicans are just at this point, basically openly neo-fascist, but like the stuff that the Democrats are doing is mostly the same. <laughs> and they have absolutely been lockstep in the same support for the entire, like, I don't know, last 60, 70 years. Yeah with this program of repression of the United States populace, especially the working class. And Mm -hmm. this sort of thing, just for one final example, before I wrap up this segment, like, because this continues, this is again, not one of those things that we hit 1991 and the Soviet Union dissolved and then the CIA stopped doing all this sort of stuff. Like, no, no, this continues. Like, so folks uh, obviously would know that now we, when we think of, you know, the, the way that drugs come into the United States, we largely think of like the Central American, South American drug cartels, especially in a lot of cases, Mexico. And the U.S. is just as deeply involved in those operations as it was with the Contras. One of the ones that I think has gained a lot of the most coverage, there was a really good episode on this that Truanon did, um, are the Las Zetas cartel, which was made up largely of elite Mexican soldiers from the the GAFE, which was a special forces group called the Air Mobile Special Forces Group that was developed with the assistance of the United States and trained at Fort Bragg specifically to combat the Zapatista movement in southern Mexico. Oh. And so the U.S. spends all of this money like brings in all these special forces guys to, to give them all this, you know, elite training on counterinsurgency and how to fight like away from the front lines, how to do infiltration and assassination, all the stuff that the U S loves to train its death squads on. And then, you know, uh, unfortunately for 
most of the people in this in Central America, because of how United States neocolonialism has destroyed so many of the economies in Central America, after all this training and, and, and providing all this equipment, a large proportion of the GAFE troops, some estimates pointed as high as 25% of the entire force, decided, hey, uh, we could make a lot more money if we work with the cartels instead of against them. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up did, like leaving the state security, becoming the security arm for the then the Gulf cartel, and then eventually splitting off to form their own, the Las Zetas, who became notorious as one of the most violent cartels in the world. Like, I mean, the, there's a million examples of a bunch of like horrific things that they've done to try and terrorize communities into not opposing them. Right. And yet again, this grows, it's not something that came out of nowhere that drew directly out of a United States counterinsurgency program against a left wing movement. Yeah. Well, and an interesting thing about the Zapatistas, uh, why the infiltration and uh, assassination tactics and stuff were so much less effective against them. It's largely because uh, by the time the intelligence agencies showed up, the Zapatistas had already quietly gone around to all the villages and started bringing them things they need and helping them like build buildings and, you know, get their shit together. And uh, they were already so well-liked and everyone was on like a first name basis with each other that there was really no room to infiltrate. So, I mean, having that kind of like on the ground, material solidarity goes a long way towards uh, keeping the CIA off your back as well. Yeah. And like, I, I know the Zapatistas are commonly, at least in the U S like considered to be like an anarcho, an anarchist movement of sorts. Yeah. Cause we they don't have a political they, education in the U S that can actually, that can accurately describe what the Zapatistas are, which is a yeah, lot of different things. Right. And, and I think that the Zapatistas themselves have come out and said, we are not an anarchist movement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, that's sort of that's directly that's that's Mao's guerrilla warfare tactics mm-hmm. 101 is that the guerrilla must swim in this uh, in the sea of the people basically like it the, everything stems from that sort of mass line work it's um yeah and so yeah like that's been one of the only ways that movements have found a defense against these sorts of you know death squads and high technology, incredibly well-funded, like special forces organizations that the U S has tried to design as counterinsurgency movements. And, uh, you've provided us here in the notes with a, a little map from the the book that you're pulling a lot of this stuff from, right? Yeah. This is yeah, the path I- that peaches take around the world in order to make it to your supermarket. <laughs> yeah. I- I'll put this, I'll put different, this in the different note. type of sugar. Yeah, I'll put this in the notes, I think, if I can figure out how to put pictures in the notes. Uh, it's, it'll um, be in the Discord. It'll Yeah, this will be in the Discord. This is a, this is a map that was included in Al, Al McCoy's Politics of Heroin that, that shows the general transit lines from the largest sources of opium production and how it gets into the United States. And it follows pretty much directly with every one of the U.S.'s giant covert warfare campaigns. Shocker. Wow. Yeah, so I'll I'll include that in the in the Discord at the very least. But right. 